But it's a great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Imani Howlett, uh, who is uh, right here a departmental lecturer at DPIR. Uh, so one of our own. And she holds a uh, PhD in international relations from the LSE. And her research focuses on the intersection of cartography, nationalism, and geopolitics within the former Soviet Union, particularly on Ukraine. Her interests also include research ethics and the use of visual and spatial methods for political science research. She's volunteered extensively in Canada and Ukraine with the non-governmental non organization Help Us, Help the Children, which works with Ukrainian orphans and families of war. Dr. Howlett has also served as an international electoral advisor on three missions um, with Canadian during Ukraine's presidential and parliamentary elections in 2019. And she's currently working on a book monograph, Imagined Borderlands, which explores the intersection and overlap of imagined and territorial cartographies to better explain nationalism and politics in Ukraine. And this is going to be the focus of today's talk. Over to you. Thank you for coming, Dr. <laughs> thank you very much, Will. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, um, for having me today. I'm really excited to be here, although I wish it was uh, within a different context, specifically. Um, prior to February 2022, I wouldn't have framed myself as a war scholar or a conflict scholar, as I was telling Will on our walk over here. Um, however, now and for the rest of my career, it will likely be framed in this way. Um, and so the talk that I'm giving today um, stems from the research I've been doing over the last five years. Um, work, I'm trying to work into um, building into the book that I had started writing prior to the war. So hopefully the discussion today, we can um, explore some of these themes, see how they resonate, and perhaps if you have any ideas, I would love to hear more uh, on that front. Uh, but I want to start my talk um, by saying that on the 23rd of February, 2022, I was at a high table at Nuffield uh, with a few economists, one of which is in this room today, uh, talking about the war and the potential for Ukraine uh, to be invaded by Russia. At that time, uh, this is a question that many people had been asking me because I'm an ethnographer and I've spent a significant uh, amount of my time of my life uh, in the country. About one year I've lived in Ukraine. Um, at the time, people didn't believe or couldn't understand why I thought that Russia would invade Ukraine. Um, as we'll go today, I'll show you uh, why this was the case based on my research. Uh, but for the economists in the room and the political scientists, um, for them, the models um, couldn't explain or couldn't predict that a war would happen. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the intelligence we saw in Europe, in the US, and the UK suggested that this was not the case. However, 24 hours later, this was the case. And uh, this is where the invasion was, approximately 6 p.m. on the 24th of February. Um, but yet this invasion happened about 12 hours after I had the conversation at Nuffield. Um, for me, this was not a significant surprise. Um, there were certain surprises, which I'll go through in this presentation. Uh, but this was a surprise for the international community. That was because we didn't foresee or we didn't expect the buildup on uh, the border with in different places, but along Russia's border as well as in, around Belarus, we didn't expect that that would actually lead to an invasion. Still, in the last uh, few months, this has also proven to be a surprise for the international community. Um, and what this map shows, it says present here. The present is actually the 15th of May when I, I grabbed this. Um, but this has been a surprise. The resistance of the Ukrainian people uh, and to push Russia back from their state uh, we see more um, as conflict continues um, around Kharkiv. Mariupol has been in the news today as we've seen um, Azov kind of being in different places um, at the current moment. But nevertheless, this is changing. But what is most surprising for the international community, uh, for policymakers, students, and academics, has been the fact that the Ukrainians um, have, been, have so strongly resisted the Russia invasion. So this then leads us to the question, how can we understand Russia's invasion into Ukraine? And how can we understand the Ukrainian response to Russia's invasion? 
So these are questions we continue to ask ourselves as scholars, uh, but what the question that I'm going to push forward and the question that um, is sort of motivated, or my research is motivated by, is more that how do territorial and imagined cartographies interact in the Ukrainian case? And this is something that we need to talk about um, in order to understand both Russia's invasion as well as the Ukrainian response. And this is what I'm going to go through today. So I started studying Ukraine seven years ago following uh, the Euromaidan. Um, my family originally comes from Ukraine, and so I was already familiar with the language and the culture, but that's not the specific reason why I chose to study the country. Um, more precisely, I chose to study Ukraine because it is a borderland, or it's often conceptualized to be. Uh, this is, uh, it can be understood, I guess, as a borderland between the East and the West. So whether we conceptualize the East to be the former Soviet Union, uh, the Eastern Bloc, or even just Russia and Belarus's countries, it is geopolitically located beside them, as well as Europe or the West, again, however we understand these to be, the European Union, or even just four uh, European countries uh, located there. Um, with this, though, and this is—I mean, this has been this conceptualization of Ukraine uh, for quite a long time, um, from the international community in a more of a geopolitical lens. But also, we need to understand that Ukraine, as a word, Ukraina means uh, border or edge. So it actually is a place. It's been understood as a place that is located at the edge or in between these spaces. So sort of on a macro level. But in, at the micro level too, Ukrainian politics has often been approached at sort of this east-west uh, division within the country, uh, pre-Euromaidan specifically, or, or the Revolution of Dignity, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, that occurred in 2013-2014, and then eventually we saw the annexation of Crimea and then the ongoing war in Donbass. So this has been a way that scholars have approached uh, much of Ukrainian politics, nationalism, and identity. Um, and with this, we often saw the West to be more uh, Ukrainian, more nationalistic, um, often more pro-European, um, pro-democratization, and that's often how the Western side of the country has been understood, where it stood in contrast to the East. And the East was seen to be more Russified um, in their language, their culture, identity, um, more perhaps pro-supportive of you know, communism or the legacies from the Soviet period, etc. We often saw this geographically as well and used the Dnipro, or the Dnipro River running outside of Kiev as being the sort of that division or that boundary line. Um, this has been challenged extensively and there's much literature on this since the Euromaidan. Um, some scholars argue that this border or boundary has actually moved from the Dnipro uh, eastward to actually include more of the country in what we think is west where other scholars have challenged just this idea completely and said this is not a way that we can understand Ukrainian politics. Uh, but we still do know that there is something there that influences how politics, nationalism, voting patterns happen at the local level. Um, because of this, um, I was motivated to approach Ukraine from a different way and to kind of challenge this idea of it being so simplistic, this East versus West, and to say that there's actually a lot more going uh, on in Ukraine that we haven't really been looking at. So during my doctoral research, I decided to pick regions of the country that aren't studied as often. So at the macro level, if we take Ukraine as a borderland, I picked Kivohrad, which is a region located in the center of the country. It is geographically the center of the country, therefore the center of a borderland, where we could see the influences, or at least I thought, between the east and the west. In addition, I selected the region of Chernihiv. You've probably heard about this region. It's been in the news quite a lot as the invasions uh, come in through Chernihiv and on the way to Kiev, which is right there. Chernihiv is not only on the border of sort of the east, so to say, uh, bordering two countries, 
but it is also on the borderlands of Ukraine. So it is sort of a borderland of a borderland in that sense. Similarly, Zakarpatia, Transcarpathia, is a region located down here. It borders four European Union countries. Like Chernihiv, it is on the borderlands of Ukraine, the borderlands of a borderland. Uh, but it is also, it stands in contrast, and that is on the borderlands of what would be the West or the European Union. Uh, so in contrast to much political science and our research, I also took a different methodological approach. So I spent 16 weeks in Ukraine between 2018 and 2020, uh, which was moved online at the very end um, when I left the field in March 2020 due to the pandemic. Uh, at this time, I volunteered in various capacities. I taught English. I helped um, in different community groups. I painted. I lived with the people uh, that I studied with or that I was studying. Um, but I also conducted 27 focus groups and 61 elite interviews uh, with academics, politicians, and people of high social standing um, in the three regions. Um, more importantly, and what I want to go through today, is I also um, created my own mapping exercise, drawing on psychological and geographical literatures. It's a cognitive mapping exercise to better understand the ways that people see themselves or understand themselves within space. It was my understanding or my hope that by showing or uh, giving people maps, we could understand how they see themselves vis-a-vis -vis other countries, and then that would open up a larger conversation about identity, nationalism, and different attachments. So I wanted to show this, the exercise that I created. So in a focus group, I would give individuals this blank map, um, which this is Ukraine, but I, I did not tell them that. I just gave them the map, and the instructions say, please mark on the map where you are from. Feel free to draw or erase any borders you see fit. Once you have marked the map, explain where you are located and why you've marked yourself the way that you have. So these instructions are in Ukrainian, Russian, and English. Um, yeah. So when I presented these maps, I hope you guys can see them at the back. Um, these, when I presented these maps uh, in Kivahrad, so the central region, this is what I saw. Most often than not, individuals located their precise city or their village on the map. Um, sometimes in English, but more often was in Ukrainian and or Russian or a, a dialect called Surzhik, which is a, a mix of both. Um, so we see that there we often saw positive connotations. Sometimes people would put hearts or flowers, sometimes a star, suggesting that they have a positive you know, association with that place that they marked. On occasion, uh, people um, like highlighted their oblast or their province, um, but in Kibohrad, that was not as common as people just putting the precise place. Interestingly, very few people highlighted the country of Ukraine, but instead just that local level. In Chernihiv, we saw something very similar. And many, uh, many people, again, put um, the individual place, although they more often also highlighted their province, um, as you can see here. And they often wrote in English or Ukrainian. Um, Russian is also quite common and more common here, which isn't surprising given where the region is located. And finally, uh, in, in Zakarpatia, the region in the west, um, again, we saw specific places, but more often than in the other two, people identified their region. They really highlighted the, the region, and I'll show you in a moment, or suggested that it's actually is separate from Ukraine and that they don't feel uh, specific attachments. I'll go into that in a bit, but what I want to show here is that this really emphasizes the local attachments that people feel. And this came up quite substantially, and also the qualitative work in the focus groups. So these are three key quotes that have come up in each place, um, but it talks about the importance that they put on the local village or the city that they live in. So one in Kivahrad, we have a proverb, the place where you were born, you are needed most of all. 
In Chernihiv, I can say the following, every person has their surroundings, and these surroundings influence a person view, person's views of life. And finally, in Zakarpatia, no matter what the government is, this is still our motherland, in referencing the region of Zakarpatia, not their specific village or city. This influences a certain way, um, in a certain way, people's mentality, our attitude towards this or that country. So with this, with thinking back to the questions I proposed earlier, one thing I want to emphasize here is the strength of local attachments in Ukraine. So when we think about the invasion and we think about the, the resistance of the Ukrainian people, something that we didn't recognize was how strongly people feel attached to their country. I will go over to why this is the case, but this is something to keep in mind uh, throughout this presentation. It's something that wasn't recognized when using top-down approaches um, or even some of the other modeling we have is really understanding how people feel, to their, feel about their land and the places that they live. Yet when I also gave the map, this often came up. So this is in Kivohrad, the center of the country. So rather than highlighting the borders of the country, what we see in Kivohrad is people very much, first of all, emphasize the border with the EU, suggesting join the EU to erase the border with the EU. Um, again, erasing it here, creating some sort of, it says Eastern European Union. Um, noticing Russia's cutout. Um, here we have a strengthened border and uh, incorporation of this area. This area actually used to be Ukraine's, ironically. And I'll go over this is called Kuban, and I'll talk about it in a moment. Similarly, here, Kuban is included, and we see the strength in uh, the territory of Ukraine. I mean, this is quite fascinating for me to find, but yet I also found it in Chernihiv in a different way. So in Chernihiv, we see a strengthened border where Russia is, a highlighting of Crimea. Again, circular where is, but notably here, Zakarpati is kind of cut out from the country. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it is an interesting finding. Um, here, interestingly, we actually have an inclusion of additional territory. So not only a little bit of Kuban, but these old, uh, or sorry, this bit of Russia, which I'll explain what that is in a moment. And so th again, this is quite interesting to me because this shows not only are people saying that they're attached to Ukraine, they're saying we're attached to a specific idea of Ukraine. That is the territory from 1991 with a reinforced border, um, with Crimea included, or even historical understandings of what was Ukraine. With this, Zakarpatya showed a very different picture. Uh, Zakarpatya, as we can see here, highlighted their region and suggested that they are not part of Ukraine. They were, this is Hungary right here. This makes sense because there's a very high percentage of people who are ethnically Hungarian who live there. Um, but again, we see it opening up the border with Europe, but in a very similar way, specific to the region, uh, an inclusion with uh, Slovakia and Hungary, and again, we see it very clearly in Hungary. Um, this is, again, a very much a tied to the fact that these uh, ethnic minorities live in Zagapatia, but also a mountain range separates them, the, the Transcarpathian Mountains separates them from the rest of Ukraine. So this can explain um, in addition, and I'll talk about it in a moment, uh, they were one of the last, the second last region to join uh, the Ukrainian SSR, so in the 1950s, so they really haven't been part of what is sort of Ukrainian land, so to say, uh, for as long as the other regions. Nevertheless, what these taken together show us is that there were under-recognized pro-EU and anti-Russian sentiments at the local level. So we know this to be the case in Western Ukraine, because many academics have surveyed this and researched this, but we often thought that these anti-Russian sentiments were quite strong in the West um, and not so much in the East. As we can see here, they did exist at the central parts of Ukraine, as well as places that were on the border with Russia. And that even though where my participants lived in Chernihiv, they speak Russian, they identify as ethnic Russians, uh, they are against um, Russia. I mean, we can see this in this example in Chernihiv. 
Because of our location, we are like in a dead end. We have Russia, the enemy, and Belarus, which feels okay about Russia. Um, in Kibohrar, we have the center, and they, again, they speak about these competing influences, but we still see them. In the, when you're in the middle, everyone is trying to influence you or trying to refer to you, like everyone is trying to influence you. And finally, Zagapatu, which makes complete sense from what we just saw, we are very attached to Europe and Ukraine since we are located at the edge. Interesting here, if we look and unpack this a little bit, they're not saying that they are in Ukraine. They're saying that they are attached to Ukraine and they're attached to Europe, as though those are two separate entities, which is a really interesting observation, because they, which makes sense, because they also feel like their region should be their own country, but that's a different discussion. So this is the second interesting finding when I'm trying to understand the war. Um, but what I really get excited about is this, um, is when we look at these, these are three overlaid maps. I've showed this to some of my students before. So these are three overlaid maps from the ones that I just showed you. Um, I, I wish it could be darker, but I didn't want to draw over the lines because these are the, the originals, and I, I just feel ethically I shouldn't draw them. But as you can see, we have Kuban, as I mentioned. We have some of these older ter or other areas up here um, added. And if you can kind of see, we see this um, sort of the separation of Zagapache, if we understand. Now if we look at this, this is a historical map of what was Ukraine. Uh, we have the Soviet Empire here, and we have the Austrian-Hungarian Empire here. So if you look, when you compare these two, I mean, quite interesting, especially at the top is what I want to emphasize. We see these old areas, these old geographies or cartographies are very much replicated by the participants. Um, in addition, we have this map. We have Kuban. So this is a 1914 map, um, which includes one, and for those of you who don't read Ukrainian, this is essentially, the blue is essentially the border of ethnic Ukrainians. So the blue is where ethnic Ukrainians were located in space. As we can see, it is outside, it's actually in that space, which then makes sense when we see this area. The most important thing to know, though, about these maps, so I just replicated basically that so you can understand kind of where the borders are. So we have Kuban here. And the extra space is up here, um, and then there's a map. These maps, all three of them, were drawn by individuals under the age of 30 years old. This means that they've only lived in independent Ukraine with its current territory until the annexation of Crimea and Donbass. But they understand that has been the state that they've lived in. Yet, when asked to draw, they've reproduced these 100-year-old maps. Why is this happening? What does this mean? And what does this tell us? The interesting thing is this perpetuation of these spatial imaginaries of where, where are, what are Ukrainian lands have been reproduced. However, they've re been reproduced. It could be through discourses, it could be narratives, it could be through textbooks, and this is something I haven't explored yet. Um, but this shows that through generations, these ideas of what is Ukrainian or what are Ukrainian lands have been reproduced up until the current day. Yet, interestingly, it's not Ukrainians who have been invading another country. It is instead the opposite. So that uh, that then sort of leads us to other questions. This is another example of what one of my participants drew when trying to explain this to me, was saying that this is Ukraine in the middle. This is a territory that they have had since 1991, but yet this has only been where Ukraine is. It has been constant, and yet everything has changed. What the individual also wanted stressed was that these changes have not come from this side. The changes have always come from this side. Um, I'm going to let you guys interpret that on your own, but um, it was a very interesting another um, explanation as to you know what has been happening in Ukraine. So then this at least helps us understand a little bit better um, why we see Ukrainians resistance so strongly um, in the last three months. Okay, so we understand why we, we know they're very much attached to their space or their, their sorry their particular places. 
Uh, we understand these pro-EU and anti-Russian sentiments, and then we understand also that these spatial imaginaries have been reproduced and that they're willing to fight for their land. But how do these, in, how these uh, imagined and territorial cartographies intersect is beyond just the Ukrainian idea, though. It also has to involve Russia, right? And so when thinking about this then, I mean, noticeably, these are all along Russia's border. So this very much speaks to Russia's imaginary, whether this be Putin or the Russian regime or the state or the people. Um, I can't, and most of us cannot do the research to understand this right now. However, this is a really interesting understand, or I guess an interesting approach is if we understand Ukrainian spatial imaginary to extend beyond what is the territory of Ukraine, we can assume that Russia's spatial imaginary expands beyond what is uh, the borders of Russia contemporarily. Which makes sense when we look at, again, going back to these old maps, this was the Ukrainian SSR. So far, contemporary Russia already has what was, or what used to be these Ukrainian lands. This is already part of Russia's territory. So now what it is essentially doing is working its way through to include what was the former SSR um, into its own territory to make it its own. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. In addition to kind of reinforcing this idea of what is Russia's, Russia's spatial imaginary, is the fact, like I mentioned earlier, Kraina means border or edge. But how we talk about it in Ukrainian and Russian varies, and this emphasizes the differences in language. But when we say in Ukraine, in Ukrainian, we say Ukraini. Um, this translates to land at the edge, in or at the edge, u or v, kind of are used interchangeably. But in Russian, we say na Ukrainia, which means like on the edge. And if you think about at the edge versus on the edge, there is a different connotation phonetically and semantically. This, again, shows how we understand Russia's imaginary and where Ukraine is placed sort of uh, within that. So the question that remains is where do we go here? I mean, I wish I had more answers. I guess, if anything, this does show us, this is a, I think this is the map, one of the most latest maps I could get, which shows where significant fighting has been in the last 24 hours. Um, you know, this was a, what I would have expected would have happened on February 24th. Um, rather than a full invasion, I think anyone who's familiar with the Ukrainian context, we would have seen increased tensions in Donbass and perhaps standing that way. Uh, coming in from the other regions was not um, was a surprise. And however, I can tell you that in Chernihiv, in the time that I've spent there, um, those individuals have been preparing since 2014 for such an invasion. So um, I don't have the roads on here, but one of the this is always told to me the most direct route to Kiev is from Russia is through Chernihiv. So these individuals in 2014 had a, a blockade of tanks around their city for a year, protecting their city, assuming that that would be where Kiev was going to be attacked through. But when it, the invasion happened on 20, uh, the 24th of February, these individuals were ready. They had um, many uh, possibly illegal um, material that had been taken from Donbass over the years and had been stored in the region. So this is not a surprise. Um, for them that this were when it would happen, but it they were not unprepared, if that, so to say. So not only were there attachments there, but military-wise, um, at least the volunteer battalions were very much uh, prepared for such a battle. So moving forward, we need to realize, most importantly, is that these changing cartographies in Ukraine and all those borders, border changes I've showed you, this had left Ukrainians with a relatively weak attachment to their state. That is why they felt very much attached to their local level because the borders around them continue to change, and yet the only places that remain constant were their villages or their cities that they lived in. Um, these local ties have remained important at the grassroots, and this is a challenge to study up in any other way except from at the grassroots to understand what is happening there. 
Um, in some places, we do see a weakness of the state, specifically in Zagarpatia. They didn't feel attached. They understand that they hold a Ukrainian passport. They do not identify with the Ukrainian state in very few instances because many of these people work and live most of their lives in the European Union and only come back to live in Ukraine, crossing the border every day because it's a lot cheaper to live in Ukraine. Um, Pre-war, there was also underlying um, sentiments, not only of separatist or separatist feelings, um, but also this idea that nations, many nations existing independently within Ukraine and not a sort of cohesive understanding. So these are things to think about going forward is what will happen kind of into the future. But most importantly, we need to think about the fact that Russia, Russia's spatial imaginary continues and will continue to play a significant role in Ukrainian affairs. So we saw this politically um, following 1991, where they were part of the Ukrainian politics. Um, most, no, I mean, there's no other way to say it. Um, but now we see over time, Ukrainians have become more and more pro-EU, uh, pro-NATO, and sort of moving westward, if you will. Um, have these sentiments towards Russia changed then um, throughout the war? Have they become stronger is a question that uh, currently needs to be asked. And um, there have been some surveys suggesting this. Um, and so to sort of just kind of finish up, I want to just kind of emphasize that um, before the war, so in December 2021, 68% uh, of Ukrainians blamed Russia for the aggression. 20% uh, believed it was possible to achieve, achieve peace in Donbass, which is not a significant percent. 43% of Ukrainians were ready to defend if an invasion were to happen. Yet, at that time, 22% did not believe it was going to happen. In February, we see some changes, and we believe there was an increase in realizing this invasion was going to happen. We saw that 49% in particular in Western Ukraine, whereas less in the East believed a threat was possible. But still, 43% were against any concession to Russia. That is an increase from 20%, so already people feel less um, willing to you know, maintain some sort of peaceful ties with Russia. And finally, we see an increase of 5% of people at that time willing to join the Ukrainian forces. This then asks us, um, is a project that I've just, just finished you know, two days ago. Um, it's a survey, we've just run a public opinion survey in Ukraine to understand how now going forward Ukrainians see their country. Um, this is being, has been run in these regions, um, so I don't have any preliminary data yet. Um, but this will tell us, hopefully, where Ukrainians now, at this time, amidst the war, how they feel about Russia and how they feel about the EU. So the particular questions are more, what should integration look like? Where should it go? What would be options, in your opinion, the best uh, security measures for Ukraine? Uh, what steps of the authorities would you support in exchange for peace? In your opinion, what are the largest allies of Ukraine? What are the best security options? And finally, who do you think is responsible for ending the war? So I've given you lots of information <laughs> so for this. <laughs> we have lots of things to think about and hopefully talk about. But what I really want to stress is the importance of moving away from the top-down approaches and that when we use bottom-up approaches, as you can see, we understand Ukraine as well as any state in a very different way. Uh, this is also, um, like we'll mention, my interest in visual methods. As we can see, using spatial analyses really can help us understand uh, different aspects of politics that we don't often see. And finally, this is important for understanding borders, separatism, and conflict. I would not have told you this, um, conflict in particular, um, had you asked me about a year ago. Separatism, yes, um, I guess they are connected, but I would not have said full-scale invasion. However, here we are. Um, and then finally, the question remains is, um, yeah, what, is this unifying the nation? Where do we go? Um, I would argue that we need to recognize Ukraine as an independent state and a nation that is located between the East and the West. It is not a manifestation of the East and the West. And I think we can most, uh, prominently see this um, as of last week, we saw the we saw the strength of the Ukrainian nation coming together. 
This is also a photo I want to show. This is from Chernihiv, a bomb shelter in Chernihiv, photos drawn by children. Um, Pre-war, um, if you looked at surveys, the re, um, national identification or Ukrainian identification in Chernihiv was not quite high. Um, or not seen to be very high or very supportive. However, I think this very much shows us that children are very much feeling attached to their nation going forward, and that there is very much a desire. So when we look at some of the quotes my individuals or my participants have suggested before, we, we dreamed to identify ourselves as Ukrainian. Many wrote Russian in their passport during the Russian Empire and Soviet Union because they were scared to be Ukrainian. And there was a local joke, there were three sons in a family, one Hungarian, one is Czech, the other is Ukrainian. However, neither has traveled abroad. I think this very much sums up um, you know, what's the complexity of the country, the complexity of identities, um, and perhaps in a way that we haven't really considered uh, within the context of the war. So with that, I'm going to end that there, and I uh, thank you. so much for that. That was really fascinating. It's going to be particularly interesting to see the results of that survey that you're doing now. Um, actually, it's the final public seminar for CCW this term. So I said I'd try and summarize the years worth of this. We've covered uh, quite a range of things this term, this year rather, from new developments in well, domains such as space and cyber, as well as new technologies, the strategic implications of AI, as well as social media. We've been assessing the UK's 2021 integrated review. We've also cast our eye towards international law, uh, put it in a historical perspective, both in terms of the right to preemptive strike and humanitarian intervention. Today, as we've been doing quite a lot this term, we've been looking at European security, and particularly through a historical lens, whether that's uh, the 1807 British bombardment of Copenhagen or the NATO enlargement debates of the 1990s. And then, of course, CCW's second part, CCW's strategy and statecraft, we look at a lot of grand strategy, maritime strategy, and the strategy of small states. And finally, there's been a great focus, obviously, on great powers, specifically the US, China, India, and of course, Russia, which brings us to today. I think at a time of so many hot takes that you see about the intensification of the, the war in uh, Ukraine, uh, it's really quite important to find more considered analysis, and we've really heard that today. So, Marnie, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you.